Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Welcome back. It has been a while since our last episode and some listeners wrote to me wondering if I had completely terminated this podcast. Let me assure you that I have not. This podcast is mostly a side project, one that I take very seriously, but sometimes life tends to get in the way. Hopefully, things should return to a more reliable frequency starting this week. Now, before we plunge into episode 7, let me quickly remind you of where we stand right now in terms of the history of the Indian constitution. In the last episode, we saw how India participated in the First World War with remarkable enthusiasm. India sent millions of soldiers and millions of pounds in cash and goods. However, India's intentions were not entirely altruistic. All over the country, many, many Indians hoped that their generosity would be rewarded by the British after the war. Most of all, they hoped that the British would finally extend some form of genuine self-government after the First World War. After all, the British Empire's publicly stated reason for entering the war was to guarantee the sovereignty of tiny little Belgium. The First World War was, in some ways, a war for the freedom and sovereignty of small nations. Surely, the British would appreciate India's terrible need for self-determination. What transpired, however, was deeply disappointing and seen as a betrayal of India's hopes. India did not get self-government and instead, all it got was yet another compromise Government of India Act. Now, in this episode, we look at three main aspects. First, as usual, we will quickly look at the state of the nationalist movement in India. Secondly, we look at why the British betrayed India's hopes. What were their motives for not giving up India? And finally, we look very briefly at the compromise legislation that was finally passed, namely the Government of India Act of 1919. So we start with the state of affairs in India. By the closing years of the First World War, things are truly miserable in India. Partly because of the war, economic growth has slowed down tremendously. Also, a combination of economic factors, colonial management and geographic conditions leads to a period of stagnation that British India never really recovers from. Now, let me explain this, uh, this kind of perfect storm of conditions that leads to this stagnation. Right up till the First World War, India was ravaged by a series of periodic famines. It was only after the creation of the Indian civil service and concerted efforts by British administrators that the impact and frequency of these famines were mitigated. In fact, the only major famine between the First World War and independence was the Bengal famine of 1943. And that famine, we all know, was almost entirely man-made and politically motivated. So by the closing years of the First World War, famines were under control and this meant that Indian population was now beginning to grow at a stable and accelerated pace. Soon, this growth would begin to completely overtake and overwhelm Indian food production. To make things worse, the First World War and a global economic slowdown that followed the war crushed Indian exports. This killed farmer income and further reduced farm output. Also, in the years leading up to the 1920s, we should remember that the British government was basically running a policy of leaching India's economic surplus. 
Now, some of this economic surplus was being reinvested in Indian railroads and infrastructure. But the fact remains that the purpose of these investments, or at least the primary purpose of these investments, was economic extraction. The profit that India's people were generating was being packed into a bag and shipped to London. All this meant that India now had a growing population that had to cope with a sluggish economy, stagnant food supplies, and very little economic surplus. According to one estimate, between 1921 and 1946, annual Indian population grew at 1.12%, while Indian food grain production only grew at an annual rate of 0.34%. Clearly, people were very hungry and very, very upset. Now, as far as the political scenario was concerned, things had begun to mature rapidly. One of the outcomes of the First World War was that it helped to heal the rift between the Congress and the Muslim League. So much so that in 1916, the famous Lucknow Pact was signed, which united both parties, in a manner of speaking, and healed the rifts that had developed between them, largely due to British interference over the years. This also meant that the British could no longer weaken the nationalist movement from within as it had done so effectively and so regularly over the previous decades. Within the Congress also, there was much greater unity. Many extremists were, were now reunited with the moderates. And if there were any extremists left, the British police and British intelligence had now begun to brutally crack down on them. What we have is a situation where economic misery, widespread dissatisfaction, was all feeding into a united nationalist movement like never before. And these nationalist Indians desired reforms deeply and somehow hoped that after the war, the British would deliver. So what happens right after the war? Complete and total independence? Not at all. In fact, not a lot happens right after the war. As usual, the British hem and haw and waffle and finally pass a piece of legislation that only manages to piss everyone off. Which brings us to our second question. Why did the British betray this jewel in its crown so badly? Now, it is important to remember that after the First World War, not all British people were so dismissive of India. In fact, many of them were completely enamoured by India's enthusiasm during the war. Go through some of the newspapers published during this period and you see editorials and letters to the editor that shower praise on the empire's Indian subjects. And they all have this very interesting tone. They say, look at these poor chaps. They have so little at home, yet they've come all the way here and they are giving so much to us. We should do whatever we can to reward them as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, this, this great public relations success um, is just battered to pieces by the political scenario in Britain. And once again, Indians suffer the fallout of political shifts in London. Now, if the Morley Minto period, which we talked about previously, saw the arrival of a liberal government on the British scene, this period saw the exit of the liberals from British politics. The last liberal-led government in the UK took office in 1916 and lasted till 1922, and even then, only with significant conservative support. After 1922, the liberals more or less fade away into obscurity, only to come back again now um, as part of the current liberal-conservative coalition. This demise of the Liberals in the 1920s was terrible for India. 
Instead of the liberals, who genuinely believed more than any other political faction in self-determination, India was once again at the mercy of hardline conservatives. Conservatives who didn't want to let go of empire. Conservatives who didn't think India was equipped with the experience or the leadership to govern herself. Conservatives who had lost so much in the First World War and now didn't want to lose the last vestiges of Britain's imperial greatness. And with these conservatives propping up their government, the liberals themselves simply had no room for manoeuvre. Now, in addition to all these facts, there's perhaps one more factor that explains Britain's reluctance to let go of India. Um, I read about this while going through a book of essays on British history by the historian A.J.P. Taylor. Taylor, who is both quite popular um, and also a tremendously contrarian and controversial historian, suggests that after the First World War, the empire actually no longer made any economic sense for Britain. And this is uh, reflected in the writings of other economists as well. Angus Madison, for example, has shown that from the 1920s, India was perhaps a continuously loss-making operation for the empire. Yet, AJP Taylor says, the British persisted simply for the sake of their own livelihoods. Way too many people in India and in London, especially in government, depended on the Indian empire for a living. So keeping India under British control was more a matter of self-preservation than a matter of economic profit. Perhaps Taylor is correct. Perhaps all of these factors had a role to play. We can't say for sure. But what we do know is all of them came together to ensure that the government in Westminster betrayed all of India's hopes. Self-government was off the table. So even when a new liberal politician, Edwin Samuel Montague, takes office in 1917 as the Secretary of State for India, um, he runs into this wall of conservative fury. Montague is a liberal politician, he's called a friend of India, and he has tremendous hopes for India's self-government. The conservatives do not budge. Let me just cite one incident. In 1917, after taking office, Montague immediately tables a proposal before the British cabinet concerning reforms in India. In this, he says that he would work towards, and I quote, the gradual development of free institutions in India with a view to ultimate self-government, which is, I think, quite a clear and unambiguous statement of uh, long-term uh, vision, let us say. However, Lord Curzon, the ex-Viceroy and a flaming conservative, demanded that this phrase be changed. Instead, the cabinet passes Montague's proposal with a new phrase that now says, and I'm really sorry that I have to quote this, but here you are. It says that the British government would work towards increasing association of Indians in every branch of the administration and the gradual development of self-governing institutions with a view to the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire. What a load of puke-worthy bull. But that's what happened. And despite Montague's relentless efforts, the Government of India Act of 1919 is once again a damp squib. The Conservatives hated every concession in it, while the Indians felt that it conceded too little. But the Act is a damp squib only as far as independence is concerned. For constitutional historians, 
and curious people like you and me, the Act of 1919 is a landmark piece of legislation. A piece of legislation that resonates very loudly in India to this day. In fact, of all the various pieces of legislation that I've mentioned in this podcast so far, this is the one that is most congruent with our current constitution. It includes many things. It broadens the number of people who can vote. It uh, includes a very important and somewhat controversial preamble. It removes all indirect elections. But most importantly, it introduces the idea of diarchy. In other words, it creates the foundation of the federal structure of a central government and state governments that India currently enjoys. The Act of 1919 was the first one which began to outline what portfolios fell under the purview of the central government and what could be delegated to the states. In the next episode, like I said before, we will look at all these legislative aspects in depth. But what did this betrayal do to India? What were the lasting implications of this great betrayal? Overall, it had the effect of unifying India's nationalist movement and making it much more popular and giving it a much more deeper popular base. Also, the nationalist movement now began to find better, more powerful leaders. Leaders who were no longer ready to settle for dominion status or limited self-government or some such compromise. These new leaders wanted India independent and out of the empire. For the British, India suddenly became much, much harder to govern. The British, of course, reacted in unsurprising fashion. They began to clamp down with great violence. Oppressive laws were introduced that continue to haunt India to this day. The Jallianwala Bagh massacre was a direct outcome of these laws, this oppression and of the public upheavals of this period. When you read through the history of this period, you can't help wondering how things might have been different if only the liberals had been stronger in London. Would India have got freedom right after the war? Um, what would an independent India in 1919 have looked like? And this question for me is fascinating because a free India in 1919 would have inherited a much more central form of government than the free India of 1947. It would have inherited an India with a strong federal structure with a large central identity. It would have also inherited a government missionary with actually very few Indians in it. Now, just look at the Indian army for instance. It was only in 1919 that the British first began training Indians to become army officers. And finally, the nationalist movement would have been led by a very different generation of leaders. So it's kind of tempting to think that a free India in 1918 or 1919 may have actually fallen apart very quickly. That it would have split into disparate states, nations or warring factions very quickly. It's tempting, but I would resist that temptation. Because it's kind of dangerous territory to uh, ask too many what-if questions from history. But like I said, it's food for thought, it's worth thinking about and hopefully that will keep you going till the next episode, next week. And in that episode, we'll really delve into the legislative nitty-gritty of the Government of India Act of 1919. There are several interesting clauses to look at. There is uh, this whole new philosophy of diarchy, which establishes uh, a certain mode of governance in India. There is this controversial preamble that I referred to earlier. And there are so many things to look at, and I think it will be quite interesting. And of course, there is the uh, interesting personalities of both uh, Montague and Chelmsford. So I'll see you then. Take care.
Bye bye.